You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening and welcome everyone. My name is Andreas Wiese and as Executive Director here at the House of Literature, it's an honor to be introducing tonight's guest, Professor Martin Puchner from the Harvard University. The author of uh, the book, The Written World, How Literature Shaped History. And it also gives me great pleasure to see that so many came here tonight to be introduced to a book about books that's not even translated into Norwegian yet. It proves that the written word has a sound future, just as it has a long past. Because in the beginning, as we know, there was the word. And then there was clay. And from clay, man made tab tablets. And on those tablets, man wrote numbers. Counting bushels of grain, inventories of food, accounting. And then, somehow, words were written down. And those words grew into a story. The story of Gilgamesh. And the world was not longer just being counted, it was told. And in his book, Martin Puchner tells us the story of this telling of stories and how literature is not only the product of human history. Literature has shaped history. World literature has shaped world history. Alexander the Great, we are told, kept the text under his pillow during his conquests, the Iliad by Homer. And after being written down, it could travel further. The Old Testament, a book of books, a library of stories which survived the memories of the people who first wrote them. The Japanese tale of the Genji, we know the novel, but we don't even know the name of the woman who wrote them, wrote it. One Thousand and One Night is even is famous, but the story of its creation is truly world literature. The tales traveled from country to country, from culture to culture, and the stories you loved as children of Alibaba and Aladdin were most probably written in Europe, not in the Middle East. Proving the old point, wherever there is a market, there will be an author willing to write a story. These are the stories Martin Puchner tells us, how world literature and world history is interweaved, and how literature is something mankind shares, and how closely the stories we know have interacted with the means of production, from clay tablets to peppers, from skulls to folios, from monks painstakingly writing by hand on pergament to Gutenberg's printing press or Benjamin Franklin's media empire. As Stephen Greenblatt, who received the Holberg Prize last year, has said, Martin Puchner brings home to us how much we have been formed of the millennia by the tales we have invented and recorded. The Times Literary Supplement write that uh, the written world by Martin Puchner is brilliant on the role of paper and on the role of paper has played in the shaping literature. New York Times writes that there is a joyous personality in this book. Puchner gives more of himself to the reader than most literary historians. Martin Puchner is a literary critic and a philosopher. He has studied at Constance University, at University of Bologna, at University of California, Santa Barbara, before receiving his PhD at Harvard University and he now holds the chair of drama and of English and comparative literature at Harvard University. He's the founding director of the Mellon School of Theatre and Performance Research at Harvard, and he's also the editor of Norton Anthology of World Literature. To sum it up, Martin Puchner has read quite a lot of books. He's the perfect guide through world literature from Gilgamesh to Popol Vuh to Harry Potter and the Communist Manifesto. Martin Pochter will now first give us an introduction to his themes before Helge Jordheim, Professor of Global and Cultural History at the University of Oslo, will join him on stage for a conversation. But first, please give Professor Martin Pochter a very warm welcome. for this introduction and thank you all for being here and I also want to thank my friend Turi Rem for arranging this wonderful uh, event, helping to arrange it. It's a pleasure to be here and it's true I thought I had read a lot of books. I had been teaching 
and studying literature for 20, 25 years. When I became the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Literature, an anthology that begins with the invention of writing and ends somewhere in the early 21st century. And during the work on this anthology, I realized just how little literature I really knew. And so I started on this journey of discovery and also trying to, for the first time, really put together the big picture of literature, something that we in literary studies, I think, don't do enough. And, and the result is, is this book. So I want to give you a little bit of a taste of this story of literature that I'm telling. And like with all stories, it's good to start at the beginning. Now, it's always hard to pin down the beginning when a new phenomenon begins. And with writing, it's maybe particularly hard. Um, so I'll start with a story about the beginning. Writing was first invented, as Andreas just said, in Mesopotamia about 5,000 years ago. Um, and uh, this is a story told by Mesopotamian scribes about their ancestors and how they imagined writing had been invented. The story is set in Uruk, a city in the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia, that's the Greek word for land between the rivers, Tigris and Euphrates. Um, and it was really one of the first urban settlements new intensive forms of agriculture had made possible for humans to congregate in one place much more densely than before and live off the proceeds from the hinterland. So this was the, the pride of this first really city urban settlement in the history of the world called Uruk. And the story features the king of Uruk who is seeking to subdue a rival king, the king of Arata. So he sends a messenger into the mountain realm of Arata and demands allegiance. The king of Arata has no plans to submit to the king of Uruk and sends the messenger back. And so we now have a scene where the messenger runs back and forth. There are threats and taunts and challenges exchanged, but we are at an impasse. And at this moment, the king of Uruk gets really angry and launches this long rant. And the scribe, the the messenger standing next to him panics because he cannot remember the long rant. <laughs> and it's at this moment in the story that the king of Uruk takes some clay, puts his words onto clay, gives the clay tablet to the messenger. The messenger runs one more time up to the mountain realm of Arata, presents the king of Arata with the message, says, here's the message. Now, the king of Arata doesn't know writing. He doesn't understand how this clay tablet could be the message. But somehow he's so impressed by this new technology that the king of Ur can put his words onto clay that he pledges allegiance. <laughs> so this story is itself 3, 000, over 3,000 years old, and it imagines this origin of writing. And two things are interesting about it, I think. One hand, it's a very self-serving story. After all, it's a story told and written by scribes who praise the power of their technology, that the mere word, not armies, could, could induce a rival king to allegiance. And the other thing that's interesting to me about it is that it has absolutely nothing to do with literature. And this is, in fact, true of writing, that it originates as an accounting technology. It's something that tax collectors begin. And this is, this is the beginning of modern state bureaucracies that keep records, keep track of economic transactions, keep records for taxes. So writing really born, invented by accountants. And this is how it remains for hundreds of years, until at some point, one of these Mesopotamian accountants decides to do something very different with this accounting technology, namely to write down a story. Now, stories had, of course, been told orally and transmitted orally wherever humans have existed. But at this point, something really crucial for me happens, namely the intersection of storytelling traditions that has happened everywhere and writing technology. And this intersection is really the beginning of what we call literature, written stories. It's sort of the big bang of literature, and it's the beginning for the story I'm telling, namely the story of literature. And so the first product, really, of this uh, intersection is the epic 
of Gilgamesh. And it's interesting in a couple of ways. It's set in the city of Uruk, which the story I just told locates as the place where writing was invented. And it's also a city that celebrates King Gilgamesh as the person who has rebuilt the city of of work. A city made out of clay, the, the city walls are made of clay bricks, the houses are made of, pl- of clay, there are clay vessels and even other clay tools. It's a kind of clay world that the epic conjures. But the, m- the most important use of clay is as a writing surface. And it presents King Gilgamesh as a writer king, as a king who writes his own story. And that's very different from other early epics. For example, the Homeric epics. In the world of Homer, there's absolutely no writing. It's a purely oral culture. And the the Homeric uh, singers present themselves as singing the story of the Iliad and of, 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 of Odysseus. Very different in the case of the epic of Gilgamesh, where Gilgamesh is presented as writing down his own story. A culture, the first culture really to produce writing and one very conscious of its importance. So this is what I consider sort of the first chapter, the first stage of literature, where you have more and more intersections of storytelling traditions and writing technologies. So more cultures around the world develop these kind of foundational epics that become reference points for entire cultures, like the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Homeric epics, or other epics of its kind. The first stage. The second stage, a new idea is introduced into the story of literature. It's an idea we are overly familiar with, so it's good to defamiliarize it a little bit. And that's the idea of sacred scripture. Now, since I've just described the invention of writing as something very mundane, very worldly, invented by accountants, it may serve to defamiliarize a little bit the idea that it didn't seem obvious that the work of these accountants would have anything to do with divinity. And even when writing was used to tell stories of of gods and men, even then the writing format, the technique of writing, wasn't really connected to divinity either. But at some point, some of these stories that were written down were declared sacred, and the writing technologies that were used to write them down became part of this divine idea as well. And the place where this happened for the first time in my story is Jerusalem. And it happens when Ezra the scribe, who has been trained as a scribe in Babylon, in the Mesopotamian culture that first invented writing, returns with a group of fellow Jewish exiles, rebuilds the city of Jerusalem, rebuilds the temple to institute Judaism as a temple religion. But he does something else, and he stages it very carefully. He builds a stage, much like this. He calls all the people together. He he takes the Torah scrolls in which he had written the sacred stories of the Jews, and he holds them up, and he demands that the people pledge allegiance to the story and bow as if these stories, as if these Torah scrolls were themselves a god. And that was something new. And I think at this moment in this scene, when, when these Torah scrolls themselves were being worshipped, when, when Ezra demanded that his handiwork be worshipped like a god, that's when the idea of sacred scripture, I think, first emerged, and very powerfully, because in a sense it supercharged the written word, it supercharged some of these written stories. And ever since, we have very much been living in a world shaped by sacred scripture, I think, to the extent that we can't even imagine what a religion, for example, would look like without some form of sacred text behind it. A very familiar story, one that's very important for our world, but like all things, it had to be invented, and it was invented, I would say, at this moment in Jerusalem. So that's the second stage, the second story of the, the second chapter in the story of literature, when some stories become uh, are worshipped and become sacred. I want to move on to the third stage, and in some ways, it's the most fascinating to me. It's part of a pattern where, in some of the most literate cultures of the ancient world, 
charismatic teachers emerge. Charismatic teachers who insist on talking to their students and followers face to face, who introduce new ways of thinking and being, and they amass more and more followers around them. Um, and there, there are different such charismatic teachers who didn't have contact with one another in different parts of the world. In, in India, the one name for a teacher like that is the Buddha. In China, it's Confucius. In Greece, it's Socrates. And in the Near East, it's Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about them and what I call this pattern is that even though they all emerged in literate societies, in societies where this intersection of storytelling and writing technologies had already happened, none of these teachers wrote down a single word. Instead, they insisted on teaching on a kind of live, interactive teaching and relationship to their students. That was part of the power. They rejected writing. Socrates was the most explicit. He came up with several arguments against writing, including that you can take written texts very easily out of context. You can't ask follow-up questions of a written text. He also worried that once we trust these external storage devices, namely written pieces of parchment or papyrus, we wouldn't have to know things ourselves anymore. So all kinds of worries about, about, he was kind of a Luddite, a skeptic of this new technology of writing. And maybe we can extrapolate that the same was true of the Buddha and Socrates and Jesus and later Muhammad, all of whom insisted on speech and rejected writing, even though they could have written. But then the inevitable happens, namely these teachers die. And now the students are faced with a real dilemma because they have to memorize and commemorate their teachers' words and deeds. They think it's all important that the world, that these words and deeds be preserved, yet their teachers decided explicitly not to write. So a dilemma which they ultimately resolve by, one could almost say, betraying their teachers because they start to write down their words. They use writing in order to write down the words of the Buddha and of Socrates and, and of Jesus um, and of Confucius. But they knew what they were doing and they preserved something of the oral flavor of their teachers. They preserved something of the rejection of writing that was the hallmark of these teachers. So what they did was produce a very different kind of text, something much more vivid, much more dramatic and dialogic. So for example, Plato wrote down Socrates' words as a form of philosophical dialogue, almost like a play, and sometimes these were actually performed on stages. And the same of these other teachers. So out of this complicated relation between rejecting writing and their students using writing, nevertheless, a new form of text emerged, namely the writings of these charismatic teachers that became immensely powerful and laid the foundation for some of the world's most important universal religions and philosophical traditions. So we are still sort of in the ancient world, um, and I want to just spend one more moment to talk a little bit about the different technologies that propelled the story of literature forward. I began with clay tablets, but once we get to the Buddha and Socrates and Confucius and their students, we're in a world of papyrus and of parchment, different new writing technologies. But we haven't yet quite entered, and we will now enter a world where two writing technologies really reshape the world of literature. They're both from China, and one is paper, and the other is print. The earliest printed text in the surviving printed text in the world is the Diamond Sutra. One of the texts written by the followers of the Buddha long after his death. Was it was carried into China, translated into Chinese, and it was in China that the, the Diamond Sutra encountered paper and print, these two technologies that really changed the written world. Why? Because it lowered the cost of literature. Paper was much more ubiquitous, much more cheap, cheaper to fashion than, for example, silk, much more durable than bamboo, and so created a world where, for the first time, texts started 
to circulate much more wildly. And because it dropped the cost of literature, more people started to enter the written world, and that also meant that new stories made it into writing for the first time. Now, I've said that the Diamond Sutra was the early adopter, if you will, of these new technologies, and that's part, another part of a pattern where the most canonical and sacred texts often were the early adopters of new technologies, such as the Diamond Sutra in 868. And then when several hundred years later, Gutenberg reinvents print in Northern Europe, the first text that he prints is, of course, the Latin Bible. So again, an ancient sacred text, an early adopter of new writing technologies. But there's a second effect connected to these new technologies, these moments of technological change, and that is because they lower the cost of literature and allow new entrants into the literary market, they always lead to a, a, an explosion of popular writing. That effect was particularly visible in the Near East, and the text that I use to illustrate that is The Thousand and One Nights, a fabulous popular story collection that was, the stories were culled from all over the place, but they now made it into the world of writing because there's a new merchant class that had access to literacy that wanted to hear these new kinds of stories, and that, uh, that meant that now for the first time, written story collections such as Thousand and One Nights started to dominate the world of literature from, the late, from late antiquity throughout the Middle Ages until we enter the world of mass the mass production of books when print gets reinvented by Gutenberg. I emphasize this idea of reinvention. There's still sometimes this idea that Gutenberg invented print. He didn't. Um, he, there was printing, uh, including with movable type, way before Gutenberg. The other thing that's interesting about Gutenberg is that he was very fortunate that the secret of papermaking had made it from China via the Arabic world and Arab-occupied Europe, Al-Andalus, into Europe just in time when Gutenberg reinvented print. Because without a cheap writing surface, the print revolution wouldn't have had the lasting effect it ended up having. The interesting thing about the print revolution is that for about 60 years, print seemed perfect for the church. The church was very happy that Gutenberg produced cheaper and better-looking Latin Bibles. The church was also happy that the other thing Gutenberg printed, even before his spy Bible, were indulgences. Think about it. It's perfect for print. You have one page in Latin. The name of the person who buys the indulgence is left free. You can write it in later. And then you can just mass reproduce indulgences with a print run of tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. There are even hundreds of thousands of indulgences printed by Gutenberg. It's like printing money. But, of course, this was the early phase of this new revolution when Canonical texts like the Latin Bible uh, were early adopters, but soon the second effect set in that you all know about, namely the Protestant Revolution, and that was the popular explosion of writing that happened about 60, 70 years later, and that ushered in a complete transformation. So for about 60 years, though, the church thought they had found a perfect vehicle in print and only found out to its dismay that that wasn't the case about 60 years later. So all of this, if you will, is the background to our current moment, because that's really the motivation for the book. We, we all know that we are living through this unprecedented revolution in writing technologies when new technologies, the internet, is changing how we communicate with words, how written words circulate, changing who writes and who has access to writing and publishing, and that is changing yet again what kinds of stories are being told and how they are being read. So I'm not going to make predictions exactly about the future, but what I wanted to do in the book is essentially look at the prehistory of our current moment and, uh, and to get a little bit perhaps of a historical distance to this confusing world that we are all in inhabiting. And if I were to draw one conclusion from this history, it would be that we see again these two effects happening, namely on the one hand, 
canonical texts, the store of world literature, is an early profiter, an early adopter of these technology. And it's true. World literature is more easily available today on such platforms as Project Gutenberg or the Internet Archives and other venues than, than ever before. And at the same time, we do see this explosion of popular writing that we don't quite know yet what to do with, such as fan literature and new forms of super-specialized romances that are only published on Amazon and other blogs and, of course, the world that we all sort of with some puzzle, puzzlement uh, observe. But I see it as a pattern that, that I track back over 4,000 years ago, and I have to say this kind of historical distance has, has made me, I think, a little bit more optimistic that what, what we are living through isn't quite as unprecedented and, however, is going to be really interesting to watch how things unfold. So this is my very short uh, history of literature, and now I'm looking forward to a dialogue with Helge. Thank you. Uh, so, do I have sound? Yeah, I do. That's good. Uh, thank you so much, and, and welcome to the House of Literature. Thank you. Uh, and I would say um, a special welcome to this book, which is sort of a... This is a book that belongs in the House of Literature, I think. It's sort of the book we've been waiting for. Finally, the book we've been wait, waiting for is there, and it's great to have it with its author in the, in the house. And because, I mean, it's, it's, it's a book about this house, in mm -hmm. a sense, how, mm -hmm. this, how this house is possible, what's the conditions of possibility for having a house of literature, what, what relationship to literature and to the written word does this, does this house contain, or what is it? So I, I hope we can sort of mm. return to that at the end, yes, because it's an yes, interesting yes, yes. Uh, element. But I, I wanted to, to start somewhere else, um, because um, you do something shocking in the beginning of the book, uh, in the sense that you... You define literature, and as you know, literature is not something you define. It's something that is sort of secret, and uh, you can't really tell what it is. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it has this uh, je ne sais quoi. I don't know, uh, but you do it anyway. And I'll, I'll quote it to you because I, I think it's uh, quite fantastic. Um, it was only when storytelling intersected with writing that literature was born. So I know, I know you would call it the story of origin, but let's call it the definition, that mm -hmm. literature is the intersection between writing mm -hmm. and storytelling. But then again, this is a book full of storytellers that don't write, right. and lots of writing right. that isn't storytelling, right. so it seems to be a tension here. Right. Right. Can you just talk about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in what yes. you, how, you, how you conceive of that. Very, very intriguing point, and, and it's very true. When I, I think when I started the book, I did imagine that this importance of oral storytelling and how that gets translated into writing would be important for this original moment. Right. But what I found really is that it continues to be important, precisely as, as you say, that, that oral storytelling continues to feed the written word and 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 challenge it and 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 enrich it to this day so that even these better and better and more and more ubiquitous writing technologies they never displace oral storytelling they just with each new technology i would say the relation between the spoken word and the written word gets reconfigured but the speaking never gets goes away and th this is something that I, I i illustrate in one of the last chapters about uh, an epic that's that should be much better known the the epic of sunjata mm -hmm. which is an, a west african epic that very much like other epics like the homeric epics or the epic of gilgamesh commemorates the founding of an empire in the late Middle Ages in West Africa, in what's today Mali, um, was transmitted orally until the 20th century. And the, the best version, the version I talk about in the book that I also include in my anthology, wasn't written down until 1994, when an, uh, an American scholar and a, a, a Mali singer, uh, Griot, collaborated essentially to produce this 
version. And so this is just a reminder, was a reminder for me, precisely of this dyna dynamic that you, that you uh, identify and that's so true. Namely that no matter how widespread writing is, there's still such a powerful oral tradition everywhere right. that continues to feed writing to this day. Right. Yeah. Right, and for very different reasons, right? I mean, there's this wonderful story about Anna Akhmatova, yes. who suddenly finds herself in a situation where she needs to rely on oral transmission, right. Right? right? Even though writing has been around for, for centuries right. at this point. And absolutely, and that was, you know, because I write about these different technologies, and I do, to some extent, admire them, like paper and print, they, they do have this kind of democratizing effect where more and more people can access to, have access to writing. So I found myself sort of, to my surprise, writing this kind of story of progress and triumph and so on and so on, <laughs> in technology. And so I, 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 um, I wanted to interrupt that a little mm. bit. And I did that with this uh, chapter on Anna Ahmatova, where, um, where, what, where because she, she, Anna, Anna Ahmatova knew that she couldn't publish as a dissident writer, would never be allowed to publish under Stalin. She even was afraid to write, leave ri a written record of her poetry. So she learned her poetry by heart, burnt the paper in which she had written it, taught it to a group of female friends so they would remember her poetry even after her mm. own death. Um, and she was, of course, very aware and very canny about it. She said, it, it be, Stalin has forced me to live in a pre-Gutenberg mm, right. world, world, as if uh, the printing press had never been yeah. invented. And I think it's a good reminder that technology doesn't just move us forward, because as writing technologies get more and more sophisticated, they authors lose control over them. And now it's a question who owns these new mm. machines, who controls them, and this was very much the case with print, the index of forbidden books, the attempt of censorship with print, ubiquitous. And I think it's even, and very, even more so the case now. Yeah. It's, it's, now it's sort of this confusing combination of state control and corporations mm. Who owns it? Who can censor? So yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was. It, I think it's very important, <laughs> as as great as these technologies are, mm. to to be aware of these right. effects. Right. I mean, there, there's many moving moments in this book, and one of the really moving ones is when Anna Agnatova tells her friends that now her 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 poem has been printed, so they don't need to rem remember it anymore, and all these people sort of feel a, a sadness and a loss of purpose in their lives, yeah. which is really this, this wonderful yeah. moment, I think. Yeah. Um, yes. Right. So, so I mean, this is this is sort of so you you know you you talked on how storytelling, oral storytelling, remains an important factor. So the, the other move you make very explicitly is to say, well, um, writing is not not just literature. So uh, li literature, in the sense that we would, I mean, that many of the, us in the room would yeah. naively think right. of as literature. Right. So we include genres that are unexpected in the yeah. literary history, right. like calendars and encyclopedias. Right. And so it seems to be, so you have this, this expansion of, into storytelling, but you also have this expansion into other forms of writing that seems to be important to you. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it's true, I think, because the ambition of the book was somehow to show the power of literature, I felt that it was important to you know, when we hear literature, we, t we tend to think of the fiction bookshelf. Mm. And, you know, I love the fiction bookshelf. And here the, <laughs> the li literature who said, I, you know, I, we have to pay homage <laughs> to the fiction bookshelf. But most people don't associate the fiction bookshelf with a very powerful thing. Mm. So I felt like we needed to expand this idea of literature to written mm. stories, to important written stories. And when I, once I had expanded it in that way, these other kinds of texts came within my purview, such mm. as religious texts, some of which I've talked about, but also political texts, mm. like the Declaration of Independence, for example, or the Communist Manifesto. So these written stories, that was really the, the, the ambition to show that they are, they are part and parcel of this phenomenon of storytelling and writing mm. technologies. Right. Though you point at an additional moment, namely that encyclopedias, and there is this aspect where, of course, new writing technologies lead to new, let's call them information technologies or something right, like right, that. Right. And it's true that they sort of hover on the, 
on on the outskirts of the book mm. because they are part of the la changing landscape of of writing. Mm. Um, um, but for me, in my mind at least, I think the focus is on expanding the idea of written stories. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, it sort of does. Even though, I mean, I, I would be interested in and uh, yeah, the calendar is an interesting yes. case because I mean, like a calendar is in a way. If not the story, at least the framework, the potential for a story. Right. And, and I mean, the Mayan calendar plays a yeah. really important yes. part in your book. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's, it's now that you say that, I probably should think more about that, the, the various calendars that I hadn't been quite aware of. It. So there's the Mayan calendar. And the Mayan case, by the way, is really fascinating to me because... If you look at all the early writing cultures in Mesopotamia, in China, in, in Egypt, they're all on the Eurasian continent. The writing system themselves are quite different, but there's no way of disproving that writing was really in the idea of using a sign system to represent language was really invented only once in Mesopotamia and then this kind of idea transfer happened to Egypt, to China and so on and so forth. It was all part of the same continental network. But we know that writing was invented at least twice because of the Mayans, mm. because this one culture in the Americas, in southern Mexico and Guatemala today, developed its own completely independent writing tradition. I was fascinated by it because it's almost like a control, a historical control experiment. Yeah. What would happen? Yeah. Yeah. And something very similar happened, namely that there's a class of scribes and, and a story gets written down, becomes a sacred text. They even develop their own form of paper. So it's, it's the, the Mayan case is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. But you are absolutely right. The calendar is very much part of that, of course, culture more, th more than ever. But there are other calendars in the, in, in the book that now that I think about it that pop up. One of the other early texts that Gutenberg prints is, is a lunar calendar, although it's really a piece of polemical writing where, where, where that, that takes the form of a, of a calendar. So, yes, calendars. Mm. Calendars. Interesting. I have to think more about calendars. It's a, it's a very interesting like point you raised. Yes. Uh, the story of calendars. calendars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the, the other, I mean, so we have a tension between writing and storytelling, oral right. storytelling, and then there's a tension, uh, I guess, which is more maybe more philosophical between idealism and materialism. Because yes. I mean, claiming yes. that literature shapes history seems to be a very idealist claim. I yeah. mean, and almost sort of uh, the Hegelian in the sense that he thinks that well, if we if we if we don't think twice about it, we would say, well, ideas govern the world, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But then again, your version of literature is extremely extremely materialist, right. as we just heard. It's about right. writing technologies, right. and about mm, parchment and clay, right. etc. So there's this interesting tension yeah. between idealism and materialism that goes on in all the book that enriches yes. us a lot, I think. Yeah, that's that's very uh, that's very interesting to put it that way, and I think that's true. In a sense, one of my interests is how changes in the material conditions mm -hmm. lead to new forms of literature, new formats. I haven't had time to talk about the difference between the scroll and the book, for example, and new genres of writing. So how material effects, materially changes, change the content, if you will, of storytelling. And I think that's one of the things mm -hmm. I was after. But, but I think you're right. It is sort of a combination of... Um, materialism and idealism. I guess the story of Alexander the Great is a good example where on the one hand I show that the, the, the Iliad really changed Alexander as a reader because when he started his conquest of Asia he basically was reenacting the Trojan War and he took his copy of the Iliad and slept on it every night. So that's sort of the idealist version, right? Someone yeah gets these ideas into his head and then is in a position to act them out and, and does so. But there's the other story that I find even more important about Alexander the Great, namely that basically he laid the infrastructure for the Iliad to become world literature just because he, he founded all these Greek settlements all over, the, all over Asia and really made Koine Greek, Common Greek, the lingua franca of this large realm 
And he, he and his successors start, founded libraries mm. that, uh, most famously, the Library of Alexandria that housed the Homeric epics. So, yes, there's this idealist mm. moment, but I, I guess you meant Hegelian in a negative sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm a, I mean, I'm a Germanist like Hegel. But uh, because there just seems to be this, this concept that you use to try to sort of uh, deal with both these sort of elements, yeah. the idealist and, and the materialist, yes. and that is the foundational. Yes. So there, you talk a lot about foundational right. texts, foundational right. literature, which is right. an interesting term, I guess. And, and how do you, how are, how, are, how are texts, how is literature foundational? Yeah. What is, I mean, you have the, it's, it's a foundation for something, something you can build yeah. on, but then it also has this, this shaping that yes. shapes history, yeah, as yeah, you put yeah. it. No, I think that I think that's really right. So foundational f for me, it's it's a quality that often is accrued over time. When a text becomes a reference point for right. entire cultures right. and is retold and readapted in, uh, in in various ways, and I think this happens with all these texts I, I describe. But I think there's something also going on where some of these texts there is there's almost a kind of foundational intention or plot or 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 or, or desire there from the beginning, for example, when you tell stories of origin, right? Yeah. So many of these epics mm. tell stories of origin. Um, or when we come to the modern texts, and especially the political texts like the Declaration of Independence or the Communist Manifesto, they have, have a, they calculate very clearly their desire to change something and, and lay down a new foundation to, to, to create a new point right, of departure. Right, right. So I think that on the one hand, we have these texts from the ancient world that become foundational over time, and then mm. these modern texts who try to imitate mm. them and engineer that right, in some right, sense, right, perhaps. Right. Does that make sense? It does, but you have, you have this wonderful... Where did I put my glasses now? <laughs> I have them on my head. Okay, <laughs> So I'm I'm the sort of the professor, uh, sort of slightly distracted. So because you have this you have this wonderful because I mean you would think that foundational texts are necessarily old. I mean I mean you you talked about that uh, a bit, but you have this wonderful uh, late example in in Derek Walcott that I really like, and you also offer a definition of what a foundational text is that I really enjoyed reading, and I just read it because I think it's really uh, useful. You say this is what a foundational text. This is about about Derek Walcott uh, and and uh, Osmaros. Uh, this is what the foundational text has to do: translate a place, a culture, and a language into literature for the first time. That's quite an interesting claim. It's very different, and I mean, it's it's something that you don't need. You don't have to be the Communist Manifesto or the Bible right. to do that. Right. You can be. It can be literature. I mean, Nobel yeah. Prize-winning literature in this yes. case, but still, I think that's sort of a wonderful definition of how that sort of moment of foundation can can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's something that I was struck more and more that these these epics really define a part of the world as you know as the center of a of a culture. This mm. is what the Epic of Gilgamesh does with the city of Uruk. It gives right, you kind of right. a tour of the city. That's how it opens. Or the Papal Wu, the mine epic that I just mentioned, it really describes how this corner of the universe became the central location of right, Mayan right. culture. So it and, and this is really when when this idea of literature interacting with the world in the sense of with particular places yeah. started, I think, to form in my mind. And when I also felt like, okay, if that's the case, then I need to get out of my armchair and start to travel to some of these places. And this is what I did very much with Derek Walcott. And it seemed like a great but also unique distillation of that because here's Derek Walcott in the small Caribbean island of St. Lucia that really hadn't had many cultural traditions but not really written literature. And so he takes it and basically writes this island into world literature almost single-handedly. Yeah. And that, yeah. that was fascinating to see, to travel around the island, not just to meet with him, but to see how everyone knew about Derek Walcott, how many of the places on the island were really written into his mm. literature. So this, this, this strange uh, uh, interlacing of geography yeah. and literature. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I'm not quite sure I have quite pinned it down, but it and became come clear back to that, that So you can think about okay. it a little bit, yeah, because uh, we need to talk about your traveling, and, and because you, 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 you used your, 
your time here to talk about history and time. But I mean, there's a geography to this book that right. is extremely interesting. So we, right. we, we need to come back to that. But, but just, I, I didn't want to leave foundational texts uh, quite yet, because you, you make this interesting move from foundational texts to textual fundamentalism yes. that we need to talk about, right. I find, right. which is very, which is a complete opposite version of a foundational right. text from the one you present via Derek Walcott. Yeah. So what's um, how do you, how do you, how does textual fundamentalism come into being? What part of literary history is that? Yeah, it it is sort of the almost inevitable. Uh, consequence, I think, of that second stage, namely the idea of sacred scripture, where, you know, in oral cultures, bards would always adapt their material to the present, to the need of a present audience in the here now. And yes, they may be old stories, but they get reconfigured for the present. Once you have writing, in a some sense, these texts get fixed. But of course, they're not entirely fixed. Because now you have to interpret them in certain ways and it's through interpretation that somehow you bridge the gap mm. between the past and maybe a remote culture and your needs, the needs of your society, uh, you as reader in the, in the here and now. But of course there is this counter move, namely what I call textual fundamentalism, that you insist on some idea of a literal translation of these texts. And as we all know, these kinds of fun textual fundamentalist readings happen with religious texts, mm. They also happen with political texts, Declaration of Independence, U.S. Constitution, Communist Manifesto. So it to me, I started to think of it as sort of the, the dark side, if mm, you will, right. of, of the written world. Again, another reminder not to be too jingoistic about how great it all is, that there are really grave problems connected to yeah. it. And I think the question of, for since we do live in a world shaped by religious and, and, and political and other foundational texts and communities of interpretation and, and struggles and wars over interpretation, how to deal with these foundational texts is really an important yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. That's, that's what I wanted to get yeah. at, I think, yeah, with yeah. that. So, I mean, you have a book that covers uh, plus minus 4,000 years and the whole world. So, I mean, how you, how you organize it seems to be a question that presents itself, right? Uh, so we need to spend some time of, on, on that uh, without making it too, too boring. Uh, but, I, I mean, um, just start with sort of... There, I mean, if you like it or not, you present kind of a canon. There's, you, you make a selection of all these... Uh, everything that is written in these 4,000 years uh, across the globe, you have to make a selection for obvious reasons. Uh, and, you, and, and the interesting thing is that you basically you make two kinds of selections, maybe even three. One is you make a selection of works, obviously mm -hmm. literary works. Mm -hmm. We heard about some some of them, the Popol Vuh, the 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 hundred one nights, uh, Derek Walcott, etc. But you also make a selection of moments. It seems, yeah. right. Uh, and and um, some of these, and that's why it might be three things, because some of them are moments of um, technology, mm -hmm. sort of technology change from from parchment to paper, or yeah. from uh, and the printing technology, digital te technology. But there are also sort of political moments yeah. in here. I mean, there's a, there's a Russian Revolution plays a prominent place, the conquest of America, the conquest of of Asia by mm -hmm. Alexander. So. So there seems to be a sort of at least two or three selection principles. Mm -hmm. One has to do with 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 works, important yeah. works. One right. has to do with important moments, and one has to do with technology. And the interesting thing is, oops, they're not always in sync. No, no, no. <laughs> so I have to say, this, I, I just started wearing glasses. So I, <laughs> You're doing a great job. No, I, I am not. But I'm, I, I'm working on my gestures, wearing glasses, taking them on and off. And but, but as for now, I'm 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 not doing a great job. So uh, yeah. I'll I'll try it. Maybe I can just hold it in my hand. But the, the, the question is that these, yeah, yeah. these moments are not always in sync. It's not always the most important works right. are synchronous. They happen at the same time right. as the, right. the big moments in history or the yeah. big technological changes. Yeah. So how do you sort of did you did you put up sort of a big bored with all these different things and then thought, okay, how can I tie them together? How did you come around that? I, I actually, at some point, I did buy a huge whiteboard. <laughs> You're absolutely <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it's interesting to hear you talk about these three principles. I think that that's really right. I wouldn't have quite been able to put it that way. 
But um, yes, I mean, in terms of canon, one of the, you know, because I work on these anthologies that get right. used in a lot of schools, I think a lot about canon. And with these anthologies, it's much harder because they're all encompassing and kind of encyclopedic. And if you don't have a certain work in it, people get really angry. And so I've been, you know, living the canon wars for quite a while. I was somewhat <laughs> relieved that in this book, because clearly, 4,000 years in whatever, 350 pages, you just have to make very hard choices that no one really seriously can expect you to, you know, include their favorite <laughs> uh, text. That's true. The, the other thing I do, did want to do here is to combine some really well-known and obvious choices mm. like, you know, the Hebrew Bible or, 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 the, or, or, or Homer with lesser-known texts mm. like the Popul Vuh or the Tale of Genji, the great no first novel really in world literature, or the Epic of Sunjata, the West African epic I just uh, uh, um, uh, described. Not so much for the logic of the book, but because I wanted I, I very much believe in expanding the culture, the, the, the canons of literature we read. I mean, this is in a, in a way what my sort of proselytizing impulse yeah. is uh, and has been for some time. So that was sort of more a kind of side effect or, right. or, or, or a kind of ag hidden agenda to, to, to show, to showcase some of these great texts that I think should be more, uh, um, should be better known. But in terms of the logic of the book, I think it was, the main, the most important one for me was this intersection of storytelling and writing technology, and from that definition really stems the idea that if you have changes in writing technology, that's going to change mm. storytelling. So really every episode, every chapter has some combination of, of, of these, and they don't necessarily have to be big new technologies like, like print or paper. They could also be parchment or, 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 or papyrus or a new format like the book, mm. the Codex. Uh, I talk about ancient format wars between the scroll and the Codex, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So that helped me a great deal once that became clear as a through line. It wasn't just about representing the canon. It was telling a particular story, right. and that story had to do with the intersection of stories and technology and their effect on history. So the, right. precisely, I think, the three yeah, yeah. criteria that, that you mm. mentioned. I think the great thing about having three criteria or is, is that it, it hasn't become a linear story. Right, that's true. Because that must be yeah, a yeah. worry when yes. you write this kind of story. Right. Because, right. I mean, it, it is, you, you use time as the main organizing principle. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, you, you started, you started yeah. with the birth of literature. So yeah. time is important. So the, the, the risk is also that, that you end up telling a linear story starting right. with Gilgamesh and ending up right. with, with uh, right. Harry Potter. But, but the, the wonderful thing about the, the way you have done this is that there are all these sideways and backwards and, mm -hmm. and people uh, or, 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 or texts come into their own at the later moment than right. one would have expected. Yeah, yeah, and suddenly, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Thousand One Night was partly invented in the 18th, uh, right. 19th century. So there are all right. these... So yeah, yeah. One of the that's one of the best things about the book, I think, that that it has this this really complex time structure that you go back and forth and fight sideways, and Gilgamesh comes after Alexander, uh, come after the Iliad. Uh, so that there are all these, so there's, there's different things going on, different stories mm. going on at the same time. And coming from you, an expert on time, is particularly <laughs> interesting to to hear. And I think that's that's true. As I said, I felt at some point I was on track of telling a linear story, and that just seemed wrong to me on 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 so on so many levels. Um, yeah, and there there are a lot of so simultaneities and returns, even on the level of technology. You know, I'm 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 so struck today. Even though there's a lot new in technology, I was struck by two things. That one, one was that for the first time in thousands of years, we are working on tablets again. Yeah. You know, it's right. really in the beginning. <laughs> and I've, I've images in the book where of ancient scribes that are sitting cross-legged with their tablet on their laps. And if I squint, they look exactly like my students who are sitting in the library floor and, and with hunched over their, yeah. their tablets. And the other is scrolling. Scroll, the scroll was really displaced by the Roman codex, what we call the book, uh, about 2,000 years ago. Because the book is, you know, great. You can sort of access information in different ways. It's it's a great way of packaging and protecting literature. But now we are scrolling again right, for the right, first right. time uh, uh, because electronic texts don't nat naturally 
mm. break into discrete pages. Right. Uh, uh, right. So it, 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 there, 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 is, there is progress, there's change, but there are also returns right. Right. of the old. Right. So we need to sort of move into sort of another aspect because it sounds now like it's a book about texts and technologies, and it is, but it's also very much a book about people. Yeah. And one of the interesting things are all these different kinds of people that appear. So you have authors, obviously, but then you have the, the storytellers, they're different from the authors. Then you have the printers, they're right. extremely important, also produce books. Right. You have the booksellers, right. and not least you have the readers. Right. So there's all these, so that's also sort of a set of different stories that can be told, that, that is told through this right. book. The stories of the readers, the stories of the authors, the stories of the of of the printers actually right, right. so and and they, they they populate your book in a very in a beautiful way i think mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no i think that that's very very nicely put and and that i i felt that was important to one of the surprises for me was has to do with the author um how late really our modern sense of authorship emerges mm -hmm. in this story of literature modern authorship in the sense of a professional writer who invents original stories who lives by these original stories, who has control, ownership over these stories, who can sell these stories in a marketplace. Right? The, these are perhaps the criteria for, of a modern author. And these authors, uh, in that definition, emerge extremely late in, in the story of literature, really only in the last maybe mm -hmm. 500 years. So, so that, that, that was interesting to me. And then I started to look at other figures who were, weren't authors, who were scribes, right. who were collecting things, or scribes who were writing down oral stories, or, or readers, and some of them famous readers like Alexander the Great, but also ordinary mm. readers, and these other figures, these, these other peoples, uh, people who, who play, play a role. Right. But right. I think that it all started when, when I realized what my default assumption was, namely, oh, there are authors. Yeah. <laughs> um, was actually something that was very, very historically contingent, yeah. arrived very late, and you know, since we have touched on the modern technologies a couple of times, may well be slowly fading out. I mean, I think this may be, it, it may be that the, this modern professional author in our sense, and, and I think we, we don't like to hear that, mm. um, may be really connected to the age of print. Mm. And today, anyone Readers become authors when they continue writing stories as on fan fiction sites mm. or, mm. or, or review, reviewers, even though they're not professional reviewers mm. on Amazon and so on mm. and so forth. So that this, this um, I'm sure there will be brand names, authors, but they may be more like celebrities that control whole workshops mm. rather than this solidary modern author that right. we all know and that seems such a familiar figure. Right, right. right. And it is also the case that, I mean, literature affects history through readers. Right. So I was thinking, I was taking notes and saying, okay, here are the different the characters. Where are the readers? And suddenly I, I realized I've been reading about readers all the time, from Alexander the Great to, to Lenin, right? right? Which is which right. is presented, Lenin, Mao, and Hu Chi Minh is presented as readers. Right. Well, they're readers of the Communist Man Manifesto. Right. Right. So that it's really interesting to see how, how, how literature affects history through their readers. The readers becomes, when you link history and literature in that way, the reader becomes an extremely important yeah, figure, I right? Think that's right. At least some of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we need to talk about you for you a bit as, as a writer and as a storyteller, uh, I, I thought, and, and as a traveler, uh, mm. not least. There's all these... You, you refer in your book several times to your your editor saying, "Well, you need to you need to bring in more of yourself." You can hear the editor <laughs> saying, so "You say. need to be more present in your book." And I mean, I, I guess you would sit down and think, "Okay, how can I do that?" And and a choice must have been you could have been present as a reader. You could you could be yeah. you can describe the situations of reading, but you don't. Yeah. You end up uh, you you present yourself more as a traveler. That's how you how you enter the book as someone who yeah. travels to these places that are in different ways linked to literature. Yeah. So that's an interesting choice, I think. And how did that come about? It's a good question. You know, I haven't really thought about it in that form. I think it was for me the the affect of myself as the narrator, if you will, of this story. I wanted to communicate is that of of 
of a discoverer or someone who discovers things. Because this is really what I felt happened. Because as I said uh, in the beginning, I, I've been studying literature for a long time and I felt like I knew a fair amount about it and then I realized just how little <laughs> I, I knew about it and, and it was really a, a journey of discovery. Now it's true that I could have uh, uh, it was mostly a journey of discovery as a reader and I guess I could have written that but someone sitting in a chair reading is not the most dramatic so I think maybe <laughs> the story of me as a traveler was a way perhaps of dramatizing discovery right. um, um, so this uh, um, would be one theory and the other was what I said earlier that I was became more and more not something that I really expected to start with but that I became more and more fascinated by the place by the way in which literature shaped place and sort of anchored itself in particular mm. places and so that 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 made me want to go places uh, as well and, and sort of see that and get a feel for that I felt like you needed to and it turned out to be the case I felt like I, get a I got a much more vivid sense of the way in which literature shaped geography if you will than if I had stayed in my armchair but so that was is the immediate answer but the other is maybe maybe to dramatize the sense of discovery mm, which mm, is really mm. what, what mm. I feel this book was for me and what I wanted to communicate right. to readers. Right. And I mean, it's also a way of, of staging uh, the geography of the book. And, because the, the, the risk would be that even though you insist on bringing in literature from continents that are usually not included in the big Western canon right. for obvious reasons, I mean, that, that might have uh, gone under the, the, the right. radar if you haven't right. been traveling. Right. So I think that that, right. that way, yeah. that yeah. is also an important function of, of traveling mm -hmm. I, I think mm -hmm. uh, and I mean then then again there I mean you you also have some travelers some literary yes. travelers that right. that occur in your book like right. Goethe traveling to Sicily right. and even exactly. Batuta and yes so there seems to be a a, a link be, between I mean we we've we place you place literature sort of sort of quite solidly in in history and chronology but it seems to be a strong link between his uh, literature and geography as well that, yes. that you're interested in that you highlight. And I think since you mentioned Goethe, um, it, it is in a sense connected to this idea of world yeah. literature, which em emerges relatively late as a concept in the in the 19th century in, in 1827 by Goethe, this provincial German writer who travels uh, yeah, right. and who starts to who starts who who begins to realize that he even though he is in this provincial town of Weimar, 7,000 people, uh, that's all, that he suddenly has access to literature outside the Western canon um, and who grapples with that and, and realizes that there is a new era. He's witnessing the beginning of a new era, and that is world literature. And so he tries to access some of that through travel, but he's not the most adventurous <laughs> travel writer. He makes it as far as Sicily and feels like basically has, can, can check Greece with that, and I guess that's sort of true. Uh, so a lot of it is imaginary travel, uh, but uh, I think he has the right idea, let's put it that way. So I don't have uh, the time, Andreas. One minute. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, 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 okay. yeah, right. Um, so... I guess I, I wanted to come back to this sort of what we do now because I mean you you talked about it in your in your uh, lecture in your talk that well there this moment in history where the dialogue plays an important part and and I mean even though we have all these so I I, I guess I want to ask you uh, what we do now is this sort of a strong element of continuity in in sort of how literature is being performed or done or is it sort of it can also be seen as something that has been revived because of new media form mm. new technological forms of literature what's your guess why are we here yeah basically <laughs> so the, the the last it's interesting which i hadn't quite thought of that way i would have said that there's that it's in it's a real change, but it's a change that happened before. So, you know, it's a change that happened, especially with the explosion of popular storytelling, 
This is something that people worried about with the invention of print. This is people what worried about with the invention of paper. This is what ancient scribes worried about as scribal schools became bigger. One of my favorite texts are these fragments from scribal schools in Egypt and Mesopotamia, again, three, 4,000 years ago. And what do these fragments contain? Students complaining about their teachers. They are mean. They, you know, they're too, they demand too much. And what do teachers complain about? Of course, the students aren't what they used to be. They are somehow distracted <laughs> by new things. And it, it's amazing. They could really have, it could have been written uh, yesterday. So, 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 um, the, that's the continuity yeah, yeah. part. But it's continuity of change, mm. I suppose, because there are these real transformations. Yeah. And so that, that, it's so, so that's maybe how I would put it. Right. But, but your point about a revival is also interesting. Mm. I want to think more about mm. that. Um, that as something seems to be disappearing, we are prompted to revive it. Is that, was that yeah. your thought? Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So that that I'm gonna end on uh, end on 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 that note, sort of with my only. I, this is a this is a book I have enjoyed tremendously reading. So I I only have sort of one uh, clear criticism, okay. and that's I I think the title is slightly wrong, yeah. the subtitle, because it's it's uh, it's called how literature shaped history, yeah. and where did that that past tense come from? Yeah, I mean this is as you said, yeah. this is very much about how yeah. literature still True. has been shaping and still shapes yeah. history. So um, um, yeah, it's true. the the <laughs> The American title is different. Really, um, it is the power of stories to shape people, history, uh, civilization. See. The British publisher liked the shorter one, yeah. um, but, um, but he still could have kept the press shapes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Point but, taken. Uh, yeah. Point taken. <laughs> <laughs> but on that note, I, I warmly recommend this to everyone who's interested in how literature shapes history. <laughs> and I want to thank you so much for this yeah. conversation. And thank Martin. you very much for your question. Thank you. And thank you all. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.